0: bereavement room is a podcast for our community faith and culture featuring representative voices from across the uk and i am your host kulsima ali hi i'm hatim aldawi and you're listening to the bereavement room podcast
1: hello i'm priya ahmed and you're listening to bereavement room podcast hello i'm Bushra malik and you're listening to the bereavement room podcast hi i'm tanya hardcastle and you're listening to The Bereavement Room Podcast. Hey, what's going on? It is Sly King, and you are listening to The Bereavement Room Podcast. Hello,
0: I'm Lydia Kirkland, and you're listening to Bereavement Room Podcast. Hello, I'm Abigail Chewett, and you're listening to Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi folks, welcome back to Bereavement Room Podcast. If you're tuning in for the first time, You can find Bereavement Room on social media. The handle is at Bereavement Room on Instagram or Twitter. As you're all aware, Bereavement Room is a British-born podcast. However, this final season has seen me spend some time across the pond over in the States. And so today I'm in New York. I am joined by today's guest, Bushra Malik. Bushra is a writer and the crisis communications manager for New York City Emergency Management. She is writing a biography highlighting her mother's life in Bangladesh and as an immigrant in New York City in the early 90s. She enjoys bird watching, cooking and researching outdated blasphemy laws. She hopes to empower and inspire fellow Bangladeshi women to fulfill their dreams and put themselves first. I stumbled across Bushra's blog a couple of months ago. She wrote a very heart-wrenching, raw reflection of her bereavement and her grief. Her father died very suddenly. She talks to me about what it was like to get that phone call the day that her dad got taken into hospital. And also something that goes unspoken but isn't uncommon, family estrangement. Bushra had an estranged relationship with her father for quite a few years and so she talks to me about the lack of parental guidance that led to that estrangement and the truth being how much she loved him and always loved him and why estranged relationships, especially between parents and children, are difficult something else that we briefly touch on in our conversation is whether our community is a monolith or not Busher often speaks out on this that our community is not a monolith and i would wholeheartedly agree i don't think any community is a monolith however it does need its own podcast episode dedicated to it it's quite a big topic so please bear in mind that we scrape the surface on this but i hope that you do enjoy our open reflections to everyone that's tuned in, please take good care of yourself. This conversation could potentially be triggering. If you have to take a pause and come back to the conversation at a later date, please do so. As always, thank you so much for listening. I am your host, Kosima Ali well hi everyone welcome back to bereavement room podcast i'm in london well i'm always in london but i like to think that i'm in new york so the best i can do is uh bring new york to you i'm thrilled to say that today's guest is bushra mallik hi bushra how are
1: you good morning i'm doing good kalsama thank you for having me on the podcast
0: Ah, you're very welcome. Um I just for context so that my listeners uh, know how we stumbled across one another, I actually found you via Bengalis of New York. um and that's how I found your blog, and um I, I read your blog. Uh, uh, I saw the tribute that you made to your father, so i'm I'm really pleased to you know have you here on the podcast and pleased that you were happy to kind of talk to me. About your dad and your experiences, but also uh, about our Bangladeshi community and where
1: you've grown up so I'm looking forward to learning more about you no, I'm excited. I'm excited to share it and you know I'm, I'm I'm thankful that Bengalis of New York has also given me that platform where um, Bangladeshis and the Bengali diaspora around the world can really have access to different writers and different experiences I think you know it makes us all more connected than you really expect us to be.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, shout out to Bengalis of New York. Um, I, I did appear on their podcast last year and I think Cam and his team, uh, everyone's doing an absolute stellar job to elevate our voices. You're on the writing team,
1: right? I am, I'm part of the editorial team. So um, I write pieces for them time to time, uh, highlighting different issues within the Bengali community and beyond.
0: Mm. So so tell me a little bit more about yourself before we get into that, like where did you grow up?
1: Sure, so um, I was born in 1991, I was born in Dhaka, Bangladesh. Um, My mom and my dad, my mom was one of eight brothers and sisters and my dad, you know, he had his family as well. Uh, And we, you know, it was really my dad's dream to come to the United States because my mom, she was a flight attendant for Biman Airlines, which is the national airlines of Bangladesh oh, wow. and yeah. So, um, you know, I think for him, you know, he told her, hey, you know, you're always working. If we go to the United States, it'll be better. You can be a stay at home mom, or you could wait to work until Bushra is older, uh, dedicate some more time to, to the family life. And I, you know, I think my mom really believed in that. You know, they really believed in the American dream. So, um, we we moved to the United States. My dad came first uh, a few months after I was born to really establish the roots, hmm. and then my mom and I followed after. Uh, so I grew up in Queens, New York, and uh, you know, so this was almost thirty years ago. And at that time, Queens wasn't. Queens has always been diverse, but the Bangladeshi community is not what it is today. Uh, I don't have the exact numbers off the top of my head, but the Bangladeshi community is probably one of the largest immigrant communities in New York City. Um usually if I see another South Asian, I assume that they're Bengali before I assume they're Indian or Pakistani. So that's that just goes to say how many of us really existed in the city. We have large populations in Queens and the Bronx and parts of Brooklyn. Um my childhood was pretty is pretty interesting. Uh, I guess it was uh bicultural in many ways because, you know, like many Bangladeshi families raising your children in the Western society trying to find that balance of how to hold on to, you know, cultural values while moving forward in, in a completely different country where you're forced to, mm-hmm. um, you know, come to terms with, you know, what you accept or what you find unacceptable. Um, mm-hmm. So so now, you know, I'm an adult and I actually work for the city of New York. Uh, so essentially it's city government and I work for New York City Emergency Management, which is a uh, it's, it's a city agency and our mission is to help New Yorkers before, during and after emergencies uh, with mm. preparedness, education and response. And my specific role, I'm the crisis communications manager. So what that means is I help update social media, I help update our website. Um, You know, there are different uh, external facing things that we do, whether it's through our uh, public outreach programs, whether it's through our website, whether it's through the different guides that we have. Uh, As a Bengali American, Bangladeshi American, I also speak Bangla, so uh, my skills have been used to interpret for Bangladeshis who've been affected by disasters here in New York City if needed. Um, so it's a it's a very fulfilling job. I'm really happy with what I do. and um you know, I'm yeah. thankful to be in a field where I can help Bengalis directly if they need the assistance because, as as I'm sure you know, Kama Bengalis, we're not very prepared when it comes to emergencies. We're kind of like, yeah. We'll just pray and hope Allah fixes everything, which is yeah. not the way to look at things.
0: Yeah, we can't pray things away. It doesn't work like that, unfortunately. And I wish it did, but it just doesn't. Um, and I'm so glad you're there as a voice and as a translator and to do this important work in the community when there is a crisis. And I, I'm curious to know, like, what is it like? Like, what was it like growing up in Queens?
1: Oh my goodness. Um... Well, me personally, I'd always been sort of nerdy. So ever since I was really young, my parents were really adamant about making sure that we did well in school. You know, I have one sister, Susanna, so they were the same with Hmm. her. It's also really funny. I always mention this because my name is Bushra because I was born in Bangladesh and my sister, she she got away with the American name. Ah, Um, interesting. Sometimes people, yeah, she has a pretty Anglo-sized name. Hmm. Um, So... You know, I mean it was a diverse community. I lived in Jackson Heights, Queens, up until I was twelve and then I lived in Corona, Corona, Queens, which is where I'm currently living. We actually just purchased our first home, which I'm so excited. I saw that. About. Congratulations. That's a very big achievement. Thank you. It's it's you know, it really is I'm just so happy. We work so hard and my sister and I purchased it together. My mom will be living with us and uh you know it's in the Bronx, it's a little bit further from where we expected to live but uh, it's a nice community it's a safe community and you know that's what everyone wants but I mean as far as my upbringing goes you know it it a good upbringing in regards to education I loved my local schools um you know it was always diverse I mean it was interesting um and then uh, you know I went to I went to Bronx Science which is one of the specialized high schools in New York City. Um, and the way the public school system works in, in New York is you, know, you have private schools, which are essentially, quote unquote, better schools, but then you also have specialized high schools. These are public schools that you have to take an exam for. And I'm sure, as you could probably already assume, uh, a lot of bond she's take these tests quite seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, you know, almost to the detriment of children, I believe, because, you know, while I took the test and I got into one of the schools, the day that we received our um exam results it was uh, for lack of a better word a shit show there were so many kids just crying literally throwing oh, tantrums the no. because they were just so afraid of how their parents were going to react I had a teacher tell me I had a student whose father didn't talk to her for months because she didn't get into one of these schools oh that's so sad and yeah it's really it's honestly quite depressing because I don't think while I'm thankful I went to one of these schools I don't think that it's the end-all be-all of whether or not your Mm. child's going to be successful and these measures are um pretty it's it's pretty detrimental to your children to assume that just because they get into a a school or not um they're going to do well um so lately yeah it was really it was very you know and even going to Bronx Science while I loved it it it, had always been a rat race and um, it sort of pushes us to always Quite competitive. Well. Yes yes and I think now that I'm older you know I'm going to be 30 this year I sort of everything sort of slowed down for me especially with the COVID pandemic.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: I think before I used to always think about how much money am I going to make how, how how far can I get ahead and you know with losing my dad and with dealing with COVID I think it, it really has forced me to reflect on what my personal values are and um, where I see myself going in life, because mm. at the end of the day, um, we're all going to pass someday. And do I really want to look back in life and think, well, at least I was the commissioner of this agency, or at least I uh, I had this particular title, or at least my children did, you know, got into yeah. to these schools. And, you know, it's really about the relationships that we maintain with our loved ones. And it's about the love that propels us forward. Um, I...
0: Absolutely. It is about those relationships and the people in our life, not the status or the title, how much money we've got in the bank. But it takes a while, I think, um, to sort of digest and, and process that truth. Uh, And a lot of that does come with hardships and when someone you love dies. And before we we go to that, I mean, we talked a little bit about culture and community there. I know that you on your socials, something that I've noticed lately is there's a lot of discourse around our community and whether it's a monolith. Um, And I know that you talked a little bit about that on socials. Why do you think some members of our community think that? You know, we're not a monolith and that we should be a certain way, or we're not cultured enough, or that we don't eat rice with our hands, or that, you know, there's a lot of assumptions and presumptions that fly around if you're not from inner cities and you speak a certain
1: way. That's a really good question. Um, I think that, you know, I mean, there are so many big values that live outside of Bangladesh itself right so depending on your upbringing depending on where you've been raised depending on the community that you've been raised in those little those little impacts really affect the way that we see the world and affect the way that we are you know Bangladeshis that live or you know folks from the Bengali diaspora so Bangladeshis that live in Los Angeles for example or Bangladeshis that have grown up in London completely different experiences. she's that have grown up in Queens versus the Bronx, completely different experiences. Mm. So, you know, when I say that we are not a monolith, you know, we're just all very, very different, you know? So for <laughs> example, my my family came here almost 30 years ago. And when I say that, when I quantify it, it sounds like a very long time and, you know, more so in the past Uh, 15, 20 years, more Bangladeshis have moved to New York City. And sometimes I find myself speaking to Bengalis, whether it's through work or, for example, if I'm coming home uh, from a late night and my cab driver happens to be Bengali, we'll talk about our lives. And I realize um, growing up, I was not privileged at all. Mm. My parents, you know, neither of my parents went to college. My mom, you know, she was a cashier for much of her life. Uh, And then she got sick in 2000 and Uh, 13 she had open heart surgery yeah and ever since then she was really unable to work because you know with that surgery she did not heal properly she had bronchitis she ended up getting pneumonia Um, she was in the hospital for 21 days Um, and then with my dad I mean he was really he wrote for local Bangladeshi papers but he was also a cab driver for most of his life and none of these jobs really pay all that much right and when Mm -hmm. I went to when I went to college, I had to take out all these loans. So, so growing up, I really always had this disadvantage, like many immigrant kids do, right? Unless your parents had um, well-paying jobs, it's it's known that we always have to work hard and do well because that's going to propel us forward and get us out of this cycle of poverty. Um, thank goodness, and you know, I, it's interesting because we ta- I, on social media. I talk a lot about how I'm unhappy with certain things and. In in our culture and religious wise, but I am quite um, I'm quite spiritual and, and religious to some degree myself. I always say Alhamdulillah when I'm happy about things, and you know Alhamdulillah, and I'm so thankful that um, we have gotten out of that cycle of poverty. So it's interesting now to see myself and my family and think of us as privileged when I may not relate to Bangladeshis who are coming to the country now so much so. So that's why I say that you know Bangladesh Bangladeshis aren't a monolith because we're all at different levels of our journey. You have Bengalis who are coming to the United States or London or you know other cities who um, you know have just gotten here and they have a lot of work to do to propel themselves forward, to get themselves into the job that they want or if they want to get married or whatever their life goal may be. And then you have Bangladeshis who have been here for decades who have really, um, who've grown up here, who've assimilated, who have this sort of bicultural way of looking at life. And, um, you know, they have been able to find jobs, find well-paying jobs, or just, you know, join some industry that has, has pushed them into middle class or whatever eco- social, socioeconomics mm-hmm. they might be in. And then you have their kids who are trying to figure out what their identity is because, you know, if they're learning Bengali, it's so different from English. Are they going to bother learning Bengali at all? Are we going to push these traditions forward? So mm-hmm. it's a lot of different aspects. And then, you know, as far as Bengali goes, there are... Hindu Bengalis there are Christian Bengalis and while the majority of us happen to be Muslim Bengalis I think you know even as Muslim Bengalis it's very you know it's it's all these nuances it's all these small um differences depending on where you are and everyone everyone says something is the truth and who knows what the truth is because you know for as far as I know maybe Farzana is making making it all up.
0: Hmm. I mean, there's a lot of layers to it. It's like an onion and we could be peeling it for days. Um, (laughs) I think it's interesting because I'm just going to reflect openly about my own experiences very briefly before we move forward. Um, I grew up in a predominantly white area in the suburbs of London and I went to a predominantly white working class school. Uh, my postcode is a postcode lottery, it's a death trap postcode. Uh, but people always presume because of how I speak or how I carry myself that I have this close proximity to whiteness, or I've had comments growing up that um, I speak like a white girl. And that's often come from people from the Desi community. Uh, but they don't, you know, there's things that people don't realize. Uh, I feel like a lot of people comment on lives they've never lived and experiences they've never gone through. Um, Because I I definitely don't come from a middle-class family. Um, And I think my accent probably disguises a lot of things uh, when I was growing up. And, you know, I didn't have a privileged education. I didn't leave school with any notable GCSEs or A-levels because of life circumstances and learning abilities and things like that. And so I find it really interesting that this whole monolith thing has sort of turned up in on the social channels because when I was at school, nobody was really talking about it. You just get bullied all the time and people would just gaslight you or it's just something that you didn't really often talk about. And I felt like I was always fighting for acceptance, whether that was in my white school or with my Desi friends. It's like, you could never be accepted anywhere. Um, and yeah, I guess I just find, I guess there are so many layers to it, and it it really depends. And also because, like, my parents, you know, I spent large chunks of my childhood and teenage life in Bangladesh, where they just pull me out of school for several weeks and months. I mean, if you do that now, you get fined by the government. But like back then, my parents would be like, "Oh, we're going to Bangladesh for six months," and, and that would be it. So. I find it really interesting how people determine what it means to be like true Bengali or true to your community or you know very cultured and you know who you are based on whatever their truth is in their world Uh, and I think for anyone that's listening I think that it's important to just ask people rather than assume or presume that they're middle-class or that they have this, or that they had this type of education because you don't actually know, you don't know anything about that person's life and whether they live in the inner city or not. And I get a lot of that because I didn't grow up with inner city kids. I didn't grow up with a Desi community. I, you know, I had Desi friends in high school, but it was still a predominantly white school. And I had Desi friends in my part-time jobs, but, um I there is a lot of assumptions and presumptions that get thrown around where people just assume you're not in touch with your culture and I I mean that's really really damaging I mean people should just ask just ask them directly like do you speak Bangla have you been to Bangladesh like you know
1: I mean that's not that's not what we do we just make assumptions right I think um I mean that, that's what Bengalis are really known for, right? I, it, and it's unfortunate. I think, I think in due time we will be able to shed those values, but um, you know, we don't. We come from a culture where uh, we focus so much more on what the society looks like or what the family looks like from the outside that no one really asks questions. And I, you know, it's it's interesting that you say all of that about how um, you know people don't ask questions and everything is. Uh, it, is, is assumed and it really um reminds me of the loss of the Tauheed family that occurred earlier this week maybe yes in peace um and you know i wonder how many people looked at that photo of that family and assumed that they were a happy family because they had three older children all all of whom were brilliant right because i think incorrectly if correct me if i'm wrong but i think farhan went to some uh great school
0: yeah
1: right and then um the name of the daughter, I am forgetting her name, so forgive me, but she got into NYU and she, you know, mm. they were all really smart kids. And from the outside, maybe people assumed that this was a happy family, but I wonder how many of their f- friends and how many of their neighbors asked them, how are you doing? How are the kids? I mean, I don't even remember the last time, um, You know, aunties and uncles will ask, what school does your child go to? How are they doing? But how often do they ask, is your child happy? Are you happy? How is everything going? How is your mental health? My, um, you know, when my parents, so my parents had been separated for a very long time, almost 10 years. And I'll never forget that when my mom finally mustered the courage to kick my dad out of the apartment and kick him out of the house. um, The insane comments that we had received the, you know, some of the uh, loaded, comments and just really hateful comments people had had said to her and you know we were somewhat ostracized in some ways because while her closest friends were quite accepting of the experience because they'd known of the tumultuous relationship for decades uh we actually had a neighbor who said that her husband didn't want her to come over to our apartment because my mother is a single mother and i was flabbergasted yeah that's horrible like how dare you you know, and I was, and I was so angry. And that was something that I always, I had always promised to myself that I will speak up no matter what, if you think I'm a bitch, then that's fine, because I will not put up with that level of disrespect ever, just because you want to assume that you're a better person than me, or you think that your family, you think that my single mother is a heathen, and she's going to somehow ruin your family just because we don't have a husband at home. Are you serious? So, you know, that's just, that's just an example. I mean, even even when my mom was single, we had, a, so we had um, considered moving to the projects. So, you know, the projects are essentially like a public Actual housing places. that you, yeah. exactly, you apply to it. And, you know, we considered doing that because, you know, my dad wasn't really paying paying child support on time. And, and, and uh, we, we just lost a lot of income so and one of her closest friends which was really disappointed disappointing to me told her oh you know fed the don't do that because uh, when Bushra and Susanna need to get married what if the family sees that you live in the projects so this is what your thought process is you're not asking my mom Oh, why do you need to move to the projects? Do you need anything? What can I do to help you? Mm. How is your mental health? None mm-hmm. of these questions, just framing it around our future and marriage. So mm. that makes no sense. And, and, and you know, these, these are public contracts so that people see, oh, they're checking off all the boxes. They have both parents. They're married. These are the jobs that they have. You know, people, nobody wants to reflect because forcing, forcing to reflect on how a family is doing, forcing to reflect on how your child is doing. That's what true love is, right? Because it Mm -hmm. it makes you uncomfortable being, forcing yourself to be uncomfortable, to ask those uncomfortable questions. That's what love is Mm -hmm. because no parent or no neighbor wants to think, oh my goodness, I could have asked more questions. I could have known that Um, their children are suffering. Maybe I could have offered some external resources so they could have gotten the help they needed before this tragic accident happened or before this awful thing happened where, you know, it can, I mean, it can be anything. So I think, you know, I'm sorry that you went through those experiences because, you know, if people had just asked, oh, Cosima, you know, you sound a particular way, but I wonder, like, where do you come from? What are your parents like? You know, it's just a question. That's all it takes. Exactly. and it's it's basic
0: compassion and also you talked about the projects there I lived on a council estate for 33 years of my life and it saved like it you know it was hard but it saved us because otherwise where would we have gone and even that you get ostracized for by the community and your friends and people around you and uh, uh, you know if people just had more compassion and empathy to just learn to listen uh things could be different we could you know, live in a better world, have more healthy environments where we, as you say, can have these uncomfortable conversations.
1: No, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, you know, I think I don't know what the average income is of a Bengali in New York City, but I remember looking it up and, you know, Bangladeshis do happen to be a poor, uh, you know, a lower socioeconomic group than than other Asian groups. And, and you know, that could be for... Yeah, it's the um, same, yeah. No- yeah, it could be for a number of different reasons. But at the same time, you know, why is it looked down upon if a family receives government assistance to help themselves propel forward, right? There was a short wow. period of time where my mother needed to be on food stamps and social services to help make ends meet. And she was afraid to tell people, she was afraid to ask, her, tell her friends, you know, how do I get this help? Because she was worried about how people would perceive her. And that's just, that's not love. That is not support. And, you know, these, you know, we want to say and things that are our, our, our culture, you know, our, there are a lot of positive aspects to our culture, I think, but For sure. know, these are the things we need to really um, combat and, and reflect on and discuss. Because when you have you know, people who are walking away with uh, mental health uh, mental health issues because of the community. Mm. Um, there's a problem, so that's something that we really need to we need to reflect on and and combat head on.
0: I've really enjoyed unpacking that with you, as brief as it was, and I hope that it was helpful for anyone that's listening from the Bangladeshi community in New York and London. So that now kind of brings me to talk about your dad, who died very suddenly in January 2019. Now, are you able to talk to me a little bit about your relationship with him?
1: Yeah, sure. You know, we didn't really have the best relationship, to be quite frank. Um, It's interesting because after he had passed, I... I, you know, I write a lot about him and I talk a lot about him, but in life, I think in some ways I didn't appreciate what he had brought to the family, but in a a lot of ways I honestly just hated him growing up. And I think those reasons were also valid. Um, You know, my dad, he was a cab driver and he wrote for the local paper, but my dad was also a a womanizer and he was really abusive towards my mom Um, and he gambled a lot. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you're growing up and you have this, this, you know, he was he was a really big guy, like five foot 11. And um, my mother, she she told me this after his passing. And I really opened my eyes to why I viewed him in the way that I always did, always really afraid of him. Uh, so, you know, my he had never really abused my mom while we were in Bangladesh. But apparently when we came to the United States, he had he had always actually interestingly had not the best work ethic. I kind of. I feel like my sister and I really sort of uh, learned that from my mom because she's very disciplined, and my dad wasn't really like that. You know, he would drive because it's an easy job. You just drive overnights and you know you get your passengers. But um he would spend so much money just gambling. And uh, my mom had actually called one of his good friends who uh, visited our apartment, our small apartment in Queens all the time. And I was a baby. I, I probably was maybe a year and a half, two years old. And I was in her lap and she had called her his friend and asked, you know, like said, oh, Baya, can you please just have him just work a few more hours, tell him not to buy so many lottery tickets because he would spend hundreds of, of <laughs> dollars just, you know, hoping to hit it big. And apparently he had come home and he he noticed that she had hung up the phone. Um, so what he did was he grabbed me from her lap and he held me in his left arm well, he used his right to essentially punch my mom, like in her oh, ears and her face and smacked her. And her face was swollen. And um, she actually had to go to the hospital the day after because she was, uh, she had water coming from her ears. And my grandpa, so my mother's father, my nanna was living with us at the time. And the um, doctors had told her that she required surgery because he had ruptured her eardrum. And, um, you know, she, she went on record and said that he had abused her while she was, he was drunk, but he wasn't drunk at the time. Okay. and um, But she didn't want to press charges. And I can, you know, I always harvested, I'd always had some resentment towards her for not pressing charges, but at the same time, I think about how she's a 31 year old woman who just came to the United States for the first time by herself with a baby. And she was mm-hmm. just abused by the man that was supposed to take care of her and protect her. So I can only imagine how scared she was. Yeah. Um, so you know, knowing that this this massive traumatic experience happened and just growing up seeing him hit her so many times, whether it was with a knife or a punch to a face, holding her up against the wall, like these are things that I've witnessed since I was a child. And it's not something that I wish on anybody.
0: And, and what's it, what's that like for you though, as a child witnessing that?
1: Oh, I wish he was dead all the time. Okay. Uh, I'd always wished that he would just die or just go away. Um, I really didn't like him. I was was really quiet as a kid. I was really quiet as a child. I write a lot. I read a lot as a child and it's it's very interesting because I follow a lot of um, spiritual social media and, um, you know, the... Sometimes I'll see, I've, I've seen this one line, let's say that sometimes children will read fantasy so they could escape the reality that they're dealing with. And that was the mm-hmm. truth for me. I was obsessed with Harry Potter as a kid. I read a lot of Beverly Clearly and a lot of Judy Bloom, all of these fun authors that really helped me escape the reality of what was happening. You know, there are so many times where, you know, as my sister and I got older, we would get in between our parents or just stand in front of my mom sort of as her protection so my dad couldn't hit her.
0: And do you think that's why you're a writer now? Because you do write a lot.
1: Um, definitely. I mean, I think I think from the reading, but also just seeing my dad also write late at night. Because when he was a, you know, when he transitioned from, you know, being a cab driver full time to working for local Bangladeshi papers, he wrote for the Weekly Bengali and he wrote for Oh the yeah, I saw paper. that. Bengali Times, right? I think so yeah um but he he you know he would go to these events and just watching him at his table writing late at night you know you you don't really realize how seeing these experiences really affect um affect a child or you know make you want to to uh become sort of that way i mean he was a photographer too so it's it's interesting how like life comes full circle because while i detest everything that he's ever done in regards to the pain that he's inflicted on us i really always liked that he was able to write and he had this say in the community and he was in some ways a community leader as a messenger and he had this incredible camera and just took pictures of people i mean everyone would always say and you know he loved it but it was hard because it was honestly two different lives. You had this man who was, you know, respected in the community and people wanted to go to him to have their photos published in the papers. And meanwhile, behind closed doors, he was, you know, abusive towards his wife and kids. And, um, you know, it it was a very difficult, Upbringing, and it's mm. I, I I do see a therapist now. You know, I okay. really one after I lost my dad, and it's something that I'm very honest about, and I'm quite open about because I think I think whether or not you think you need that additional support, um, I think therapy is wonderful, and I think everyone should see a therapist because it really helps you um, unpack all the trauma that you hold on to. What in in, in the incredible thing is sometimes you don't even realize what you know what you're holding on to until you have an objective listener helping you unpack all of that trauma and um would you say that sustained
0: you going
1: forwards definitely um you know I think you know losing my dad in 2019 very suddenly I mean it took me a while to find the right therapist for me but Mm. it just it really gave me the support that I needed because I think one of the most difficult parts about losing him that uh, a lot of people have really questioned, including my own partner, is that, well, why are you mourning him so much now? He's dead. Isn't this what you wanted? You know, it, he he, he was terrible in so many ways. And I think what people don't realize is that when you, everyone wants to be, every child wants to be loved by their parents. And, you know, this is not whether you have a mom and a dad or, or just a single parent or, you know, two moms or two dads. I think adults are simply children in adult bodies and i think you know everyone just wants to be loved and Mm. when you are not receiving that love from one parent or both parents it really does stunt you in some way i think and you know all i've ever really wanted was just for him to be a good dad and to love us and i think that's the reality for a lot of people you just want your parents to love you and to take care of you i think it would have been one thing if he couldn't take care of us but you know now that i'm an adult and now i think about how i want to have a child someday I think about how I can't, I can never imagine, you know, taking a hundred dollars and using it to buy lottery tickets instead of just buying some kids for my, buying some clothes for my kids. I can never, I can never imagine, you know, smacking my, my, my partner because I'm unhappy with something that he did. You know, I can never imagine, you know, just screaming and yelling at my kids and threatening to kill everybody because I'm unhappy. And you know maybe he saw these things growing up, but it certainly doesn't justify doing them either. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure he did. I'm sure he probably witnessed them growing up. Um, but you know, therapy has 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 certainly helped me. And um, you know, it 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 was nice to have. It's always been nice to have somebody just listen to me object- objectively and ask, you know, how are you feeling? Because you know, some people have written off that I'm happier that he's gone. And as terrible as it sounds, in some ways it has been easier that he's gone, but that will never stop me from loving him because- um, He was I'm, your dad still. Exactly. So, you know, I'm mourning, I'm mourning my father, but I'm also mourning the father that I wish he was. Exactly. And sometimes that's more difficult because, you know, I just wish he was better. I, I wish he was a better person. I wish he loved us the way he should have loved his kids and his wife.
0: And you, do you think that takes- a bit more work to reconcile it sounds it takes more work to reconcile that because he wasn't so present
1: it's hard nonetheless because when you have an estranged relationship you know you're mourning the person who died but you're also mourning the person and what he could have been but it's also hard because it forces forgiveness mm. so you know what? I've I've forgiven my dad for everything that he's done okay. But I haven't really forgiven him because I necessarily want him to Go to Jannah or whatever afterlife there is. I did it for myself, and I did it for my personal peace because that's what forgiveness is. You're not forgiving somebody so they can live with themselves. You're forgiving them so you can finally get the peace. I mean, I was angry for such a long time. I've always, I've always had some sadness and some anger in me, but I've always sort of um, pushed it away and I've repressed it. And mm. you know, it forces you to face it head on once the person who is the source of your anger and sadness is suddenly gone
0: it sounds so so hard Bushra and I'm really happy that you do see a therapist and you've been able to unpack these things as you move forward and I'm just going to backtrack a little bit because when I was reading your blog it really did get me I was in knots um you you talked about what it was like to receive the phone call that your dad had died um well that he was in hospital that he had, had a heart attack everything stopped around you what was that like for you um we've done a lot of crying in this room <laughs> and uh, angry as well um so to so take your time but if it's something that you would prefer to not delve into I I will not drag it out so
1: no I think it's important to talk about these things I mean you know I sometimes I think my family thinks I'm a little bit too open but if my openness and my willing to, be vulnerable helps other people be vulnerable and seek the healing that they need and it's all worth it
0: Mm. yeah I absolutely agree with you Uh, um, being vulnerable is quite hard I definitely found it hard for a long time and podcasting has certainly helped therapy has definitely helped Um, I know what it's like to be at work and get a phone call that someone's dying it's not the best phone call to receive at all and things do stop around you that's why when I was reading it I was just like oh my god I have to invite her onto the podcast because that must have been so bloody awful that moment for you
1: I mean it was just crazy it was you know I still remember the day like it was yesterday it was a busy day I you know when when you're working in the office and of course this is pre-pandemic time so You know, everyone's closing up shop for the day. I think it was around four o'clock. And, you know, when I tell you, Galsama, I will never forget the sound of my sister's voice because my personal phone had died and I was charging it. And, um, you know, I always told my sister, please call my work phone if it's an emergency and you can't reach me on my personal phone. So when she called me, it's so crazy because I did have a quick inkling that something was wrong because she's not one to call my work phone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to this day, when I hear her calling me stressed, it just, I get that fight or flight reaction again. Um, And uh, I just heard her say, wish her dad had a massive heart attack. And she was so hysterical. And, you know, I was so scared because I thought it was my mom at first, but uh, it was my dad. And I just, I don't even know what I did. I just, I remember it felt like there was a ringing in my ears and I just couldn't focus. I just immediately got up and I was like, Oh my God. Okay. And you know, that, that sort of laser point vision where you can see your periphery, you could see the people around you, you know, I think receiving that call or receiving such bad news. It's not something that I wish upon anybody, but it's something that we all might experience at some point in my life. And nothing really prepares you for that. There's nothing mine. that you can do to met- mentally prepare for that. Um, and I just immediately, I grabbed my stuff. I grabbed what I could and I just went outside and, um, I, I I called one of my coworkers who I'm very, very close to. Uh, he happens to be my partner. So I don't, I try not to talk too much about it because it's an interesting situation. You're not really supposed to be dating your colleagues, but it is what it is, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, love called, is love. Love is love. I called him and I said, my dad just had a heart attack. I have to go to the hospital. And, you know, he was trying to assist the way that he could, but I think he was also overwhelmed with how I was acting because I think, you know, I was hyperventilating, I didn't know what to do. And, you know, within a couple of minutes, a two, two of my other colleagues came outside, one of them, Katie James, God bless her, I love her so much. She, she's one of my closest friends from work. And while she no longer works with us, she's just, she's always been so empathetic. And she knows me really well. And she said, what's going on? And I told her, my dad had a heart attack. And she said, Okay, don't worry, we'll get you a ride. And my um, you know I had called a cab already but you know having I think having a colleague take you that knows you personally is this makes a difference exactly so um you know one of my co-workers uh, Mark Shelton, he he drove me to the hospital and he, you know, he he's a police officer. So he was asking the correct questions. He asked me, do you know which hospital it is? Which hospital are we going to call the hospital? So he was sort of, you know, acting as that guidance to make sure that I'm getting the correct information as we go. And, um, you know, just that whole time, it just, it, I remember everything so vividly, but the scary thing is when you remember that feeling of of not knowing what's going to happen next and and just being scared because when I received that call you know every bit of anger that I had towards my dad it really just dissipated for those Mm -hmm. moments because you know your your parents are a part of you you don't want to when somebody has hurt you and especially a loved one you don't want to say that Um, It doesn't matter. I can just cut them off. But but that's really hard to do. You know, estrangement is not easy. And at that point, I hadn't spoken to him in almost four years, because this was the this was the kind of father who who did not plan for life. And, you know, as my sister and I got older, and we had jobs, he would ask us for money and, and, you know, had no interest in our personal lives. And it was really that sort of relationship. But, you know, I looked past all that because I didn't want him to be hurting, and I was so scared for him. Um, so then I was thankful because, you know, he, he drove quite quickly. Uh, and uh, I called the correct hospital, and they told me that he was brain dead, which, you know, in my head just means that he definitely just will die because there's no coming back from being brain dead, you know. And I asked him to take me to my mom's my, my apartment so he could pick up my mom. And it was so interesting because um you know my sister she also instinctively went home to my mom first uh and you know i think sometimes i i do think when you and a sibling or you and a loved one can really be connected uh like metaphysically because Mm -hmm. how else would she have known to go there um but i called my mom down and i wasn't crying but i called her and i just said in the sternest voice possible because you have to understand she also has heart problems so um, I didn't want to trigger anything. And I just said, mom, please just bring, bring uh, your clothes, get dressed up, bring your medicine and come downstairs right now. And I was very stern with her and I was so pissed because I'll never forget it. We just rolled up to my apartment and this woman is in her like nightgown in the lobby. And I'm like, oh my God, like mothers, do not, like the Bengali moms do not listen to <laughs> And I opened the door and she just looks at me. She's like, ma, it? And I'm like, <laughs> did I not tell you to bring your shit downstairs? So I just said, abu died.
0: And, oh, gosh.
1: And she just, she was like, kibolo. And she just, you know, collapsed in my arms. And um, I like held her up. And I was just like, okay, we got to go upstairs. And it was really just like a sign from the universe. Because my sister just walked in just as I was like holding on to her. And she told me, she was like, I saw a car pass by and I had a feeling it was you. So that's why I came home. And I'm like, oh, my God, I didn't even tell her to. So, you know, the three of us, we go upstairs. I make my mom. She took her anti-anxiety medication because she um, she does have depression and she has anxiety. And, you know, I know that has happened for a lot of different reasons. You know, it, it came on after the uh, surgery. But I'm sure, you know, I'm, I'm sure she's I know she's had a lifetime of trauma and especially having such a painful tumultuous relationship for almost 20 years that it really takes a toll on your mental health so um you know she took her meds and then mark dropped us off at the hospital and you know we we went upstairs and we we saw him and it's just as soon as we saw him we just knew he was gone Mm. um he was hooked up to this machine and um there were all these it was just a bunch of tubes, you know, in his nose. And he was bleeding from his ears. There was dry blood around his mouth. I mean... So they're keeping no- him alive with the machine in icu yes. Yes.
0: Did you have to make any decisions with relation to that or...?
1: I mean, we did because they gave us 24 hours. Um, they said that we're going to give it 24 hours to okay. see if his situation improves. And, okay. Um, the responding doctor in the ER, he spoke to us and he said that your dad was really strong he came, he actually walked from the ambulance and he kept saying I'm fine I'm fine oh, but when gosh. they did the EKG he said I have uh you're having a massive heart attack and he just wouldn't believe it and that's sort of the person he's always been he's never he's always been very um sort of looked at himself as like this macho uh immortal sort of guy <laughs> and you know suddenly he could be dying and he was just like no I'm fine he was trying to st- stand up and apparently the nurses and the doctors had to restrain him in order to to assist him. And, um, you know, he, what happened happened. And, you know, they called us after. I mean, one of the most difficult things that we had to deal with is, um, you know, it's funny because my sister and I, we both, I love her so much. She, She's very, very strong. And um, uh, I've always been very, uh, I take things very personally and I've always been that way. I've always, you know, I expect love from people. And my mm-hmm. sister, she's always sort of been like, I don't know why you expect all this stuff from him. It's not going to happen. Okay, let's move on. You know, she's always been that sort of way. Um, and, you know, for those out there who believe in astrology, just for, uh, I'm a Cancer and my sister is a Capricorn. So, I mean, that's mm-hmm. just, like, just to say a little bit about our personalities. Um, but, you know, but my sister was my dad's favorite and he was pretty obvious about it. I mean, you know, when we looked in his wallet after he had passed, he had three pictures of her and none of me which is oh, fine gosh. i saw that picture yeah i saw that on your blog <laughs> i mean it's it, it, i was like all right no problem um but you know is
0: she the youngest is she younger than you yeah
1: she's four years younger than me okay
0: so, um, that might also you- be the reason
1: <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah because you know i was the older one i feel like i've always been sort of the protector and i always called i used to always call him out on his bs and my sister she just She wouldn't put up with it, but she also wouldn't say anything because I think in her mind, she's sort of just like, well, what's the point? They're not going to change. And um, maybe he liked that. Maybe he liked that she didn't, you know, speak out against him all the time. But but regardless, you know, I mean, he he didn't call her. He didn't call my sister. He didn't call me. I mean, I didn't expect him to call me. But, you know, he 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 asked them to call um, his 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 employer. So it was her it was his manager oh, who wow him.
0: yeah so. if it, that's interesting is, is that because maybe he didn't want to burden anyone
1: or, he, or he's worried about his job or I mean I can't even tell you I don't know it just it was really mind-boggling to me because but part of me thinks maybe he called his employer instead because he didn't know he didn't want to scare us maybe or maybe mm. maybe calling us would would confirm that he's actually dying and maybe he didn't want to come to terms with that and that's i mean that's what i think it to be my gosh that is a lot that's a lot
0: and i mean you had to make a difficult decision to um turn the machine off to say goodbye um what you know what was the funeral arrangements like? Because I, 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 related with the part about the funeral where ugh, women aren't always present in Muslim funerals, right? Or they're kind of like shoved in the corner or in some back room somewhere or not in attendance at all. Like what were, what was it like arranging your dad's funeral? Cause I, I know this was like the first funeral you as a family had to organize. That must've been very difficult.
1: It was very overwhelming um, to say the least. I am thankful for my sister because she, you know, I feel like I was really um, sort of, I was so overwhelmed and I think I was also emotionally just detached. Um, I just did a lot of crying, and I was really depressed and just calling my friends and trying to figure things out. And as far as the logistics goes, you know, my partner tried to help me. But my sister, you know, she had uh, some friends who who had connections to help us with the funeral arrangements. okay, so you know, I'm thankful for them. Um, and you know when we when we knew that it was t- time to pull the plug, um, as people would say, so, you know, as soon as that had happened, that we had decided to um, pull him off life support, we wanted to work quickly to make sure that he was buried. Um, you know, Islamically, you're supposed to be buried within 24 hours technically, yeah. you know, uh, we wanted to abide by that. I mean, my dad was never really religious in his life to begin with. He um, always spoke out against um, radical extremists and, you know, he he really just wanted to do whatever he wanted to do. but. Um, as far as we knew, we, we just figured, you know, having a, a proper Islamic burial would just be the easiest. Um, so, you know, I'm thankful that my sister had some friends who would be able to connect us to the right people to have him, you know, properly washed and, you know, put into his, his, his box. Um, and, you know, the day of his funeral, it was just really crazy. Um, I forgot the name of the funeral home, but they were extremely, um, extremely organized they were very respectful um it's a funeral home out in ozone park in queens and um the man who who you know it's one of those funeral homes that um uh they employ staff members from different backgrounds that can assist with the burial process Mm -hmm. so whether or not you're a muslim or hindu or christian you know they abide by whatever your your rules may be um and he was very he was so supportive i'll never forget him ali he was so kind um he didn't treat us differently because we were women and you know he he helped clean up my dad and so did my sister's uh, my sister's friend's father, so I'll never forget him. So let two of them clean them up and you know it was really peaceful because um you know we we got to the funeral home a little bit late, but I was really happy to just see him, you know, sort of look clean and be in his bed and we just um we just prayed for him, we took turns praying and then we knew it was time for the Janazah, which is the Islamic prayer um and you know lord knows i had no idea that uh juma would be so crazy on (laughs) you know especially in jamaica queens we went to jamaica muslim center and this is a this is a mosque out in queens and you know jamaica queens has a large Bangladeshi population most of whom are muslim Mm. um we you know i I let my colleagues know ahead of time that you know this is that this is when the funeral will be if you want to pay respects you can but I didn't really expect any of them to show up. And it was, it was very hectic because as we were driving in, we had no parking at all. We couldn't find any parking for parking for blocks. So many cars were double parked. Um, There were people out in the streets praying, you know, just standing around. I go in and I say, well, where's my dad's body? Because, you know, they had the hearse to drive him sooner. And, you know, in my head, I had this assumption of what the genesis was going to be like you know and and that was you know having everybody together in one large room and his body is in the front and we're all praying for him this is the idea i had in my body in my head I get there and you know the jamaica muslim center it has three stories you have the basement and you have the first floor and you have the second floor and the women were told to go towards the back go up the stairs to the fir- to the second floor and the men were praying on the first floor and i was really overwhelmed because my dad's body was outside of the building behind it. And I was so uncomfortable because I was thinking, who the hell is going to look after his body? Why is it outside? You know, why couldn't it be inside? I mean, I realized there was no space. And then quickly realizing all of these people who are here for Juma Prayer, no one really knows him. I mean, they were, were, I later realized there were a lot of people there to pay his respects, pay their respects, but um, many of them were just strangers. So having these strangers pass by his body, looking at it, um I was really uncomfortable and I was really really unhappy so then you know there were a couple of his friends or a few people that I didn't recognize who just kept saying you know just go upstairs and pray go upstairs and pray and I couldn't do that because you know when I went upstairs I was so fidgety and uncomfortable because of the thought of him just being outside with no one to to protect him or no one to stand by him you know it's it's interesting because in life I tried to protect my mother from him and in death I'm trying to protect him from others. I went downstairs and people are trying to take pictures and I said don't take pictures of him. Um, That's quite odd. Yeah they were telling me to go upstairs and I said no I'll stay right here Um, and you know they probably thought like who is this bewildered crazy lady I mean this isn't January right like this is January 11th it's freezing cold outside Mm. Um, I'm sure there were patches of snow on the ground it was just so cold and I was so overwhelmed because you know slowly my colleagues started showing up Um, and I mean my unit is probably about 30 people maybe and almost all of them showed up so I was very overwhelmed with love also Um, My deputy commissioner, Christina, if you're listening to this, thank you for all the love you've given me. But, you know, she was the first person who came and I hugged her and I just started crying because I said, they're being so archaic. They told me they don't want me to pray by him because there was this one individual who said, um, I'll say it in Bangla. And then, Mm. you know, if you have any non-Bengali listeners, but he was like, no, no, no. And I was like, what? why <laughs> why But i'm saying he was like he's like oh may the whole, not Joe, Joe, Joe. i'm like bro my dad just fucking died shut the fuck up i'm sorry i just you know what i mean like that's just some of my anger coming out but i was like who the fuck are you yeah is, you know what i mean like my father this is my father he is dead you want me to go upstairs and you're telling me girls have to go upstairs and pray does that make any sense at all you know, I was furious. And it's
0: not his business. He's not a family member or a relative or it's not the time or place to say something like that. Exactly.
1: And, you know, the same individual, he later told me, um, What? And I was like, I, like, I was ready to punch him in the face. I was like, I'm going to stay right here. And I was like, nah, I'm making a you know, and, and, you know, maybe I came across as aggressive, but honestly, I do not care. I really don't care. Like, all of those people, I wish them nothing but well, got
0: Well, you've got every right to. You're at a funeral of your father, you're the daughter, and they are being really invasive, and I hate that about the community. They make everything their own, their own business when it's got nothing to do with them, and to, also to say that about women as well, it's so, like, patriarchal
1: and sexist <laughs> like, oh yeah I was livid I was hard. I was just like I'm gonna stay right here I'm not going anywhere um you know my colleagues were coming and it was really hard for them because you know the men were waiting outside and then the women had to go upstairs and the whole time I was just standing there I did not I refused to move and um you know our, our former commissioner also came Joe Esposito and he was you know it was so funny because I told him I was like these people they won't let me pray by him And he was so diplomatic. He's like, sometimes for sure cultures are like this. I'm like, well, fuck the culture because I don't care, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Um, So, you know, I texted my sister and I said, come down, the genesis is going to happen soon where they do the prayer. And, you know, I knew that they wanted us to stand behind him, like behind the imam. But, you know, I was really happy that the imam sort of looked over at us. And I'll never forget, he just, he was not bothered by us. He seemed, he seemed like, he wanted to comfort us and he just he stood there and he did the prayer and the men were behind him and I was my sister and I stood behind the men and um you know we were very keen on not having to stand behind them and we did exactly what we wanted to do. And then we, you know, drove over to the to his um to his his to where he's buried, um, the cemetery. And uh, you know, that was that was really overwhelming, and you know later one of my fr- one of my other colleagues told me that um, you know we were really impressed with how you you put up with them and I said, well i've been sort of speaking up against uh, older Bengali men for much of my life, and I'm certainly going to continue doing that whether or not my dad is dead or alive yeah, um, for change
0: as well, because that can really have a poor impact on your mental health when people try to stop you from being present or you know, t- telling you what to do when this is your dad's funeral. Um, and I'm really pleased that imam was there for you. He sounds like a great imam.
1: I don't even remember what his name was, to be honest. I mean, I just wish somebody had asked us, what do, you, do you guys need anything? No one asked us if we needed anything. No one asked us how we were doing. And, you know, after the funeral had passed, because I was so busy trying to swat people away from taking pictures of his face or from, you know, doing anything to the body it's that I didn't want. I, um, it was, it was really overwhelming. But later I found out like days after that um, inside the men's section, they, somebody had a mic and was saying, if you have anything to say about Golam um, Malik, please come up and let's speak his colleagues and his friends were allowed to speak at his funeral and my mother and my sister and I had no idea and none of us spoke and I didn't know that this had even happened because I was outside and when I tell you that I mean I don't even know how to explain it it's just it is it is so sad and it is so disgusting that in our community we would let the men who are not even related to this man speak and not his own daughters and his own wife you know my parents were separated for a long time but at the end of the day no one will ever have loved him more than my mother my sister or I you Exactly. Know? and it's just you know we were not given a platform we were essentially pushed to the side and you know it is one of the biggest reasons I've, I've really uh, distanced myself from religion overall because you know in, in, in our culture because I mean what you know I would never wish that on anybody I was
0: people abuse faith though you know I've done so much unpacking of like religion and faith and it's people it's people that ruin things it's like you know there are members of the community that are a
1: liability (laughs) it's just it was really disgusting and I just you know I um I mean, I don't know who I'm supposed to complain to, but in retrospect, it is what it is. You know? Yeah, of course.
0: Oh, they give, the I think, religion a bad name, personally. I have a few issues with community. I, don't get me wrong. I love, you know, community can come together. You know, we've talked about how, like, food brings us together and distribution of food and how local communities and restaurants help you during a funeral. But sometimes community, these random people that you don't even know, just poke their noses into businesses and give orders it's like who are you (laughs) you know you should be like you said you are your father's children and you didn't so how does that make you feel the fact that you never got to go up and deliver like a type of eulogy type
1: or, or something say something um I mean it makes me really angry I mean it makes me more angry that other men were able to say something versus us right um but at the Mm. same time there's a part of me that thinks maybe it's best that I didn't say anything because I would have just told everyone to fuck off Um, (laughs) especially how we were being treated as is um you know I'm I feel like as I've gotten older I really have minimal patience for you know the lack of compassion and the lack of understanding and um you know I that was also not the first time that I've I've you know uh pushed my boundaries in a mosque, so I wasn't surprised. Okay. Um, okay. I mean, I don't need, I don't need the support of all these random uncles to listen to how I feel about my father, you know, it's, it's, and it's also a difficult relationship to even say something about, right, but I would have just said, please pray for him, and I think it was important at least to give us some sort of platform to say, these are the loved ones, so at least pray for them for their healing, and, you know, none of yeah. that really so it's, you know, I'm really disappointed, but, you know, it's something awesome. that I've learned to to move past
0: i'm really sorry that you had that experience and that you went through that uh it there's you know there's no compassion there whatsoever and um it's almost like being robbed of saying your final words and goodbye to your dad which is how i felt and my dad died because my dad died suddenly and abruptly as well and it felt very aggressive and there was just so much in your blog that I related to when you wrote about your dad so would you say the fact that you never got to kind of deliver a final few words for prayers and healing would you say that you've um, made peace with that or you've just accepted or it is what it is how have you moved forward from that?
1: I think I've made peace with it because You know in that blog piece that I had written and also just speaking about it all the time I mean anyone who knows me personally knows how I feel about this whole situation um I don't think if I was even given a platform to speak I would have been able to muster up the courage to say what I wanted to say I mean I would have said what I wanted to say but I don't think anyone would have been really happy with it because of my disappointment at the time and I see. um you know, I think the way that I see it, I just wish somebody had been so, more supportive and somebody had given us some comfort. Um, and, you know, I, I will always be thankful to Ali, who was the individual from the funeral home who, um, you know, he had driven the hearse. He had taken us to the, um, to the cemetery and he, you know, did a prayer circle with us after it was done. And something that I'll never forget is we, my sister and I, we had buried him, helped buried him, and you know, I know. And I don't know if it's technically allowed in Islam, but I know culturally, women should not be at the cemetery. When... That's
0: loaded up crap. That's a cultural thing. It's nothing to do yeah. with religion. But yeah, it
1: happens. So we we um you know we we did it. You know, I made sure yeah. that we had our shovels, and we were able to put some some of that ground all over his. Yeah, his and we just said our prayers and we bid him goodbye. I mean, you know, I think the day of the time that we were just with him ourselves that's that was what was most important to me I think and you know and in retrospect I mean I'm pretty spiritual so I, I pray for him all the time I pray for him every day and I dream about him often and sometimes I wonder if these dreams are just manifestations of what I wish our life was like because you know they're always friendly and they're always loving and um, I think it's just what I'd always really wanted in, in life do you think that it's a gift? These dreams, how do you interpret them? I think, I think they are a gift. I mean, I do think sometimes that they are visits because, you know, after he had died, it didn't take long for me to start dreaming about him. And um, in the first few dreams that I had had, he, you know, I was yelling because I was angry, but, um, you know, as they continued to happen, uh, I wasn't really as angry anymore. So we were just having conversations and, mm. you know, like, for example, one of them was of us oil watching in Puerto Rico, which is something I've always <laughs> wanted to do. So, you know, it, it it does provide some comfort.
0: For sure. I love grief dreams. Um, I definitely find them comforting. Well, Bushra, thank you so much for sharing such a deeply personal you know experience of your life and the passing of your father uh before we kind of close the episode i do want to just dispel one thing um (laughs) women are allowed in cemeteries and graveyards but for whatever reason culture gets in the way from stopping us doing that you know it's a story from the hadith that got taken out of context and if you you know log on to some of the scholarly people on Instagram or wherever Muslim cancel website, you'll you'll see that they are very honest about that. That it is cultural, and women are allowed in graveyards. So this kind of now takes me to we talked about canceling already, um, and I'm. It's nice to hear that you've had some of that support to help sustain you um what's the one thing you want people to know about grief
1: grief is not linear it's different for everybody you know grief is really it's dependent upon the person that had passed it's dependent upon the relationship that you had with them there's no correct way to handle grief you know some people will cry and and and, you know spend days or even months Uh, sad about it and some people will hide their sadness and you know one thing to remember is just because someone isn't speaking about it doesn't mean that they're not sad inside you know don't make assumptions don't make assumptions about how your friend or loved one feels after they've experienced grief Um, my piece of advice to people is when you know someone has lost someone just be there for them you know call them don't text call them Show up in person, you know, ask them if they need any support, just be there for them as physically as possible or even over the phone so they know that you love them and you're there for them and, you know, they could actually support you because maybe we don't want to talk about what's happening, but just having that support and having that love there for us, it, it, it really, it makes a bigger difference than I can honestly explain. Thank you so much. That was really beautiful. And how can people find your blog? Sure. So, I mean, you know, feel free to follow me on social media, but my website is bashramalik.com. So first name, last name.com. And, you know, I just, I write life stories or experiences that I've had. And I just hope that um, other Bangladeshi people or particularly Bangladeshi women of the diaspora and beyond can find some strength through the stories that I've shared. And I just want people to move forward.
0: I'll link your blog in the episode show notes so that everybody can find it and I'll include the social channels. This now takes us to the Gratefulness Challenge. It's one thing that we're grateful for in our lives or in the here and now. I'm going to go first to just give you some time to think about it before we close today's conversation. Um so I've had you know there's been a lot of stuff in the news recently I don't know if this is a gratefulness or just an open reflection but there's been a lot of news like death in the news recently and something that I just want to say to our Bangladeshi listeners whether you're in New York London wherever you are in the world that When you're going through a difficult time, sometimes family members don't have the capacity or tools to support you. Um, Often it can be because they don't know how to. So I'm just going to share a personal experience. When my dad died over a year ago, as many of you know that listen to the podcast, my dad died very suddenly and abruptly. Um, My dad wasn't just my dad, he was my friend when I didn't have any friends and he was my mum for 10 years after my mum died. Now when my dad died, it really hit me like a ton of bricks and I had a lot of suicidal ideation and I'd never experienced that before. It was very difficult for me. I think going to therapy once a week and podcasting has helped but also being honest with my sisters who you know if you had to put on a priority list empathy it's not really top of their list they're very driven self-motivated solution orientated people and I think some of us have family members like that where they don't have the tools or capacity to listen so I realized after my dad's death that I had to uh, get support outside of my family not because they didn't care it's just they don't they didn't have You know, they didn't have what I needed to help support me through this difficult time. And I'm really thankful that I got to, you know, access therapy. Therapy isn't always accessible depending on where you live. I live in a death trap postcode, so I'm surrounded by a lot of bereavement charities, so therapy was free for me. And I'm grateful for that because it has sustained me over the past year. Otherwise, I don't know where I would be. And the reason that I am openly sharing that is because anyone that's listening, that's having a difficult time, whether it's related to deaf or something else, there will always be someone that will listen. There'll be someone that will want to help. Whether you're, you know, you call a helpline or join a live chat service, there will be someone. Sometimes it's not the people in our environment. And that's okay. It's okay to go outside of the people in our environment. There's no shame in that. And it it has really sustained me in the past year because I never really experienced suicidal thoughts until that moment, um, until the past year of having to deal with my dad's death, uh, uh, you know, readjusting to this new life without him. And so I will link some helplines that are available in New York and London um, if that might be helpful to anyone in the community. I know some helplines are better than others, but I'll list a few there. There's there's no shame in accessing therapy or help or journaling or, or whatever it is for you that works for you. And there's also no shame in speaking openly and, and vulnerably. I can honestly say it's really helped me over the past year, particularly podcasting. And so that's me on the gratefulness and I will pass the mic now to Bushra to Clay's today's episode.
1: I think in this whole experience that I'm grateful for my dad. Um, I know it's a very strange thing to say considering the amount of pain that he's put us through but I do believe that everyone on this earth has a purpose and maybe his purpose was to uh, put us through these particular experiences that made us the people today. You know, I'm thankful for my and grateful for my mother. I'm thankful and grateful for the discipline that she's instilled with us. Um, you know, I think, I think everything that I've ever experienced, while I don't wish it upon other people, it's made me resilient. It's made me um, empathetic. It's made me always want to push forward no matter what. Uh, I think especially in this past couple of years after losing him, it's really made me understand um, what love is And it's forced me to reflect on myself and take care of myself and my body. Um, You know, I hope that he rests in peace. And I hope that, you know, moving forward, I can stop this cycle of, you know, abuse that I've experienced and, you know, moving forward when I choose to get married and I choose to have children, that they will only feel unconditional love from me and my partner and, you know, I hope that for everybody else out there, listening therapy is, is an incredible tool. Um, if you're living in New York City, I use Psychology Today to find the therapist for me. And she has been absolutely wonderful. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm just thankful for everything that I have. And I'm grateful that even though not all of the experiences that I've had are easy, they've made me who I am today. And in, in a dark, twisted way, I don't think I'd have it any other way.
0: Thank you, Bashra. That was really lovely. Thank you for sharing your gratitude. And, and just on a final note, with the news about the Talhid family, um, I have been quite quiet about that. Uh, people always expect me to be some walking, talking press release about everything that happens in our community, but that's not realistic uh, for me. I just want to say that, you know, no response is a response. It's, it's okay to sit with sadness and pain and honor a quiet moment of reflection and and find what works for you and to talk with the people in your environment uh, you know normalize having uncomfortable and painful conversations make room for vulnerability which is what we did here today so i hope that today's episode was of value and it was insightful and that you enjoyed hearing from us thank you so much bushra
1: thank you for having me kalsamo thank you for everything that you do Thank you for speaking about an uncomfortable topic, but something that's really necessary. I think, um, you know, I think you're providing far more comfort than you can imagine. So I am I'm thankful that we've crossed paths and I hope we continue this relationship moving forward.
0: Absolutely. For sure we will. Hopefully I'll, uh, I'll, I'll go to New York one day because um, I've never actually been to New York. Have you been to London?
1: I haven't. looks like we're going to have some trips in the future. Well, that was Bushra Malik. She joined me in the
0: room to talk about her father who died very suddenly in 2019. It was a very open and reflective conversation and, yes, emotional. It's so crucial that we share more of our human experiences because, after all, that's what connects us to one another. Let's wish her a lot of love and continued success. Well, that's all I've got for you folks. Until next time, take good care of yourself. I am your host, Kulseema Ali. Bye.